Hey, Mike Ulmer here. The great Mark Pettipaw lent me this space to remind you that now is a great time to write your nonfiction book. I've interviewed 10,000 people. I've written 19 books, and I want to help you write yours. Here's how we do it. First, we interview you. Then we give you a detailed step-by-step blueprint for your book based on that interview. We write your thousand-word introduction, throw in some cover ideas, and suggest a title. And here's the best part. We assign a writer to help you answer all your questions for a calendar year. You're going to be so sick of us. Click the link, I want to write my book, in Mark's show notes for a free consultation. At the very least, we'll help you find your story and send you on your way free of charge. Now it's on to lessons in leadership from the stockroom to the boardroom with my friend, Mark Pettipa. Good evening and, and, and welcome to my second podcast on the little podcast, which is for lessons in leadership. The first podcast was my story. The only time you'll see me have this podcast without a guest um, and the story was you know, my journey from the stock room in a sports store to the boardroom and, and what that looked like. And, you know, my, my vision is if we can influence enough change in leadership, not only can we help people succeed at work, but we can probably change mental health in this country, too, because we spend half of our lives at work. And there is no way that that doesn't go home with you um, if you're in a negative setting for your career development and from a level of stress. And so I find the best leaders, the servant leaders, are the ones that create that environment that not only impact the performance of the company, the performance of the employee, but also the performance of the family member, which I think is fantastic if you go home in the right mindset. So having said all of that, um, tonight's guest, I'm, uh, I'm ecstatic, um, a little shocked, and I appreciate it. It probably speaks to the gentleman he is, but our first guest on this podcast is none other than Richard Petty. Uh, Richard was the ex-CEO at MLSE that you'll know him for best. Um, Richard won't brag, so I will for him, (laughs) because he's one of the individuals that has certainly impressed me through my career. You know, if you have gone to a Raptors game when they won the championship and you were sitting in Maple Leaf Square, um, that doesn't happen without Richard Petty, Ian Clark, Tom Anselmi, and Bob Hunter, and the leadership team that was there at the time. Richard not only built facilities and teams to success, he built cities. A lot of that had a big big part of what downtown Toronto has become. Um, But here's the thing with Richard that I shared in the preview, and then I'm going to stop talking and asking him some questions. The thing that I always admired about Richard, beside his smarts and just observing that you can't help but to learn, was his ability to operationalize that through an organization and stay in touch with the front lines. I think it's what made him such a great strategic leader because I saw him as a very strong servant leader. So um, enough about my introduction. Let's, uh, let's go back to the video here and bring Richard on screen. And for those of you listening on the podcast, you'll hear Richard. Richard, thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Mark. Real pleasure. I really appreciate it. I shared in a preview that like, you instantly responded and said, you know, whatever you need. And so thank you for uh, giving us 35 to 40 minutes tonight to talk about your career and your Great. lessons. Happy to do it. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, like most interviews you've probably done, uh, the intro is probably best explained by yourself. Tell us a little bit about your leadership path um, and where personal influences may have played a role and in, in how you defined Um, where you were going to go as a leader in regards to strategy and business, but also how you were going to treat people along that journey and develop them? Well, that's a big question. And uh, (laughs) I'll 
try not to let it go on and on. Um, you know, I think I was raised well. Um, parents who had really good values, honestly hardworking. Uh, I was introduced to nature early. I was introduced to books early. Struggled mightily as a student in grade school and high school. I never graduated from high school, actually. Um, and got into the University of Windsor the, through a back door. And um, struggled there a bit, too. Uh, but I, I really came into my own. One, I was just scared shitless I was going to flunk out. So that, that motivates you a lot. Um, so I started taking business, and I like business a lot, business thing, marketing, um, and I love basketball. And uh, at that time, the University of Windsor men's team was winning the championships all the time. I followed the Pistons. I followed the University of Michigan. Uh, the ir irony was I was a shitty basketball player myself. So <laughs> I, when I was 20 years old, I wrote in a journal that I wanted to run a basketball team. Not knowing at the time that that's the right thing to do. Uh, Canfield, who wrote uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, says, you know, everyone should have a vision. Write it down. I did both. Uh, kind of look at it and work at it every day. And each day, do something that moves you towards the goal. So unbeknownst to me, I did two things that I never read in a business book. And that was to have a, have a vision, have a dream, and write it in in this binder. And so I spent, uh, from that moment on, I spent 29 years, as I like to say, getting my ticket punched on that journey to run a basketball team. Uh, I was really fortunate to get hired in consumer products. I worked at uh, Colgate. Uh, they put me through a training session that was really awesome. I, I, I went out and sold soap in the Niagara Peninsula for, for over six months. I then came back and worked in market research for months which really gave me a bias to market research, to evidence-based data collection. I then worked in the plant for three months, uh, you know, really blue collar, getting to know the, those people, and that stuck with me. Um, and I spent 20, basically 19, yeah, 19 years in consumer products. I moved from Colgate to General Foods, which is Kraft Foods today. I moved on to Pillsbury. I, oh, I became a first presidency at Hostess when I was 35. Hostess Potato Chips, which was bought by Frito-Lay. My resume to a young person would say they don't recognize any of the companies because they've <laughs> all been bought. So Hostess, a couple of years, and I got a chance to go to Pillsbury. I was CEO, Pillsbury Green Giant. That was wonderful. When I was at Hostess, I read a book that was very important in the 80s. It was called Search for Excellence by Peters and Waterman. And they had a bunch of principals. These were consultants, McKinsey consultants. And they wrote down what they thought high-performance companies were. And there was one thing that really resonated with me, which was um, be a company that has vision and values. They said it a little differently. So I was leaving Hostess to take the Pillsbury job. And I can remember I was doing the transition. I was sitting on a beach in France. There was a nude beach, I think, because there was a lot of topless going on. I'm busy reading a business book with a yellow marker. And, um, and it really resonated with me. When I got to Pillsbury, they had launched their vision of values. And uh, I can still remember, it's be Canada's best food company, quality is essential, people make the difference, uh, excellence is a way of life. And we took that vision of values and we ran with it and really locked it in and made decisions based on it. The company did amazingly well. So I then, I remember, I'm, so I've got 19 years of consumer products now, marketing, 
market research, sales, finance, leading, manufacturing, and I applied for the Skydome job. Well, I figure if you're going to run a sports company, you should know the facility because the facility throws off so much revenue. And um, and I can remember the headhunter said, "Why should I? Why should I hire you? You don't know anything about the that business." And well. I took a completely different answer. I said, you're right, I don't. But what I do know is all this stuff I've learned in consumer products. This is 1989. I said, I believe sports entertainment's going in that direction, like Procter & Gamble and Colgate and Lieber Brothers. And they bought it. So I spent four years putting on about 2,000 events. I met Bob Hunter there. He was a vice president of mine. Uh, Jim Rowe, I don't know if he was there when yeah, you, you were with Big Sports. All the buyers, Margaret, Margaret Marshall. Uh, a bunch of these people that I worked with there, and, and we re I really learned that business. I worked with Paul Beeson. I worked with the Argos, many owners. The Argos, uh, I, I was offered the president of the Argos job by Harry Arnest, and then again by uh, Bruce McNall. I probably would have ended up going to jail along with Bruce <laughs> if I'd taken that job. <laughs> Good decision. Um, but now I got my ticket punched there. So one day, Larry Tannenbaum phones and says, listen, I want to go after a basketball team. Do you know anyone who wants to help? me and I was yeah me <laughs> and um, so I took six months off a of leave of absence I visited something like 22 NBA teams uh, we prepared a whole bid David Stern did not want to did not want to uh, put a team into Toronto uh, but we did this fulsome presentation we gave him a check I think for a million bucks and uh, he had to and because uh, he, he has to bring that to the board of directors and they decided to do, um, uh, uh, have people apply. And, you know, the Bitoff slates applied along with uh, Cole Ballard. Um, and they won fair and square. We made some mistakes. And I thought my dream was over. So I was, uh, Skydome, I was going back to Skydome. Labatt's owned 41% of Skydome. The late George Taylor said, listen, I need a backup for beer. I need a backup for broadcast. And I need a backup for the Blue Jays. I need you in the, in the company. So I became president of what became uh, NetStar, which was Discovery Channel, Rizzo to Sports, Discovery Channel. So I think my dream's over, but what am I learning? I'm learning about how to do rights deals. I did a rights deal with the CFL. I did a rights deal with the NBA. I'm watching uh, Michael Landsberg on television, how he does that type of show. I'm, I'm sticking around for the 11 o'clock sports desk. Um, we launched the Discovery Channel while I'm there. I launched tsn.ca, the first sports website. And then one day, Bitov and Slate have a big fight, and Slate needs a president. And I like to say there's you know, probably no one more prepared for that job than me other than Paul Beeston. And then I always pause and say Paul Beeston was definitely more prepared because <laughs> he was already running the Blue Jays. But yeah, and I got that job. So along the way, what am I learning? I'm learning about vision and values. Finding, and, and by the way, we go to Maple Leaf Sports, and what do we have? We have vision and values for 14 years. 18 words, you've taken the course, you know, you have to know them off by heart. Um, we, it makes every decision for us. So vision and vows is really the cornerstone of my leadership approach. And then along the way, you know, people are really essential. Uh, they make the difference and quality is important. But you have a vision that is stretching, reinforcing statement of intent, and you have values that are rock solid. I would say a value is not a value until it costs you something. So that was a short question and an incredibly long answer. So there was, you go. That was tremendous. Um, it, it's funny, Richard, because one of the things when I posted about you on a previous post on LinkedIn, 
a gentleman by the name of Mo who was uh, in security at Maple Leaf Sports. Oh, I know Mo. Yeah, sure. He, I, I mean, but that's the phenomenal thing about you, Richard, is like he comes out to comment about how classy you were to him and the rest of the staff, and he's commenting it on it, and you remember him of the thousands of employees that would have been, you know, indirectly and directly under your leadership. It's a proof point for me that you got it. Like the, the plan doesn't get delivered if the people don't deliver it, and, and you need to monitor that and measure it and inspire people. So I, you know, without, without uh, pumping up my guest here, it's the reason I have you here. You're one of those people who really got it and it's, and it's rare and far and few. Between. Well, you know, there's an expression, you walk the talk. So as you know, I walked the building. When at Skydome, we were not unionized. I remember if, um, if uh, a ticket, if a windows of a door, a gate is really backed up. I remember taking tickets. I just step in and start taking tickets. I'm famous for picking up garbage. And so I knew Mo and the security guys. I, you know, the, the young women who were our cleaning staff, um, you know, I got to know them. Um, yeah, and I worked on the trucks at, at Hostess. I worked in the plants at Green Giant. I picked up garbage everywhere. I, I believe you can talk the talk and so many leaders do that, but then you walk the talk. And some, it's not everyone's comfortable doing that. And for me, it, it comes easily actually. Yeah, it's, it's probably a natural tendency for you that's valued by all those around you. It, it's funny because I, um, one of the things I talk about in the concept of from the stockroom to the boardroom, I think the advantage of like having failure along the way and knowing you have to close that gap and knowing what you're strong about, you don't forget those pieces in the chain as you grow your career. Um, it Actually, your answer helps me expand onto my next couple of questions here. You spoke about not graduating. I don't know if you remember, but when I interviewed with Bob Hunter for Consumer Products, you were the second level interview as Bob's boss. And you went through my resume and I had Concordia University on there and it had credits not finished. So I also didn't graduate from university. I never went back. And you asked me two questions. Did you indeed finish? And if you didn't, why not? Um, and how will that hold you back in this role? And, and I, I obviously I demonstrated that it wouldn't. And I, and I did exactly like you did. Here's my transferable skill set from my retail background and where I think I can take your consumer, consumer products, which was really your retail business there. Um, and the second question was, you're from Montreal. Do you like the hats? I don't know if you recall <laughs> that. And I said, I can't lie to you. I love them. And you told me I had to park the love for my duration at MLSE and I, and they became my number two team. But uh, I, I, I joke about that because what you obviously saw was even though you didn't get that formal education, you knew what your strengths were. And one of the things that really impacted me as a leader, and I know many others at MLSE was how passionate you were about hands-on development. So there's two things you taught me. And both times you beat me up on them, I think, without realizing you beat me up on them. I was in your elite training camp for 13 weeks. And you had us read Noel Tishi's leadership engine. You had a gentleman who was the CEO of Kellogg's come in, Louis Miel, who was at McDonald's. You had all these great speakers. And you sent us out on best practice visits. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment. And you gave us a case study. And I pitched to you um, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment themed public facilities. So I wanted to see us in the ice arena business and basketball courts and extend the brand. It was an exercise. And you gave me a C minus. And I was crushed, but I'm, I'm teasing a little bit. What I loved was you were very hands-on about where my gaps were because I was in that small elite group that you were training for three hours a week for 13 weeks. 
but you helped identify my gaps and it motivated me to close those. I'm hearing those in your story. Um, and then you had, when I got BMO, through Bob, I'm assuming, and Bob sent me out to best practice. And we went to Chicago, looked at their facility at the time and different soccer arenas before we opened up BMO Field. Long story short, um, where does that come from? So one, where does your passion for development come from? Because you are a hands-on instructor at the CEO of a $2 billion organization at that point or, or close to in valuation. You really grew it with the team. Um, but you spent 13 hours a summer training the next in lines and going through all that effort. I mean, for background for people, we had to apply, we had to get our C-level suite to accept it. You had to review who got into the program and then you trained us. And then you invested the company's money to send us out in best practice. So please tell the group uh, listening to the podcast why you're so passionate about it hands-on and then what is best practicing in your eyes because I thought it was genius. Well, so I believe that people make the difference. So first of all, you've got to track the best people and then you have to develop them. Um, you have to unleash them. You have to recognize them. And then in the end, you have to keep them. And, you know, a lot of people believe that, and I see this a lot, listen, I've, I've you know, I've joined and I've got promoted and then I got promoted again and I got promoted again. But it doesn't mean you're becoming a better leader unless you work at it. Uh, there's a lot of shitty, as a third time I'm saying shitty, now I've said it four okay. times, um, lousy CEOs out there. And all the way through it, I just, I don't know what it was. I mean, I ended up graduating on the Dean's Honor List at the University of Windsor. Um, and I like, we'll come back to books. I'm a great book reader, and you know what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believed in that. I think, you know, at, at General Foods, General Foods was wonderful 12 years for me. They promoted me to vice president at 29 and then a president at 35. So I sure can't complain about them but their training really was lousy. So I started taking my own, as a vice president, develop my own training plan. And just wherever I went, I just really believed we had to have training. At Skydome, we had Skydome Youth, and it was training. And that was everyone. Even, I can remember sitting and doing a, a, a session with one of our cleaning ladies, and, and poor, I think her name was Rosie or something. She was so uncomfortable sitting with the president. And then, and then at Maple Leaf Sports, we did a training camp. So you know that we, we offered courses nonstop. Um, you didn't have to take them, but we watched who took them. And are you developing, are you investing in your career? You know, I went back uh, in 2002 to teach a semester at the University of Windsor, which was called Strategic Leadership. And I took that, I, ta I taught 22 fourth year students on it. And I came home and kind of parked that binder off to the side. And then after a couple of years, I thought, man, I'm sitting there with a gold mine of stuff. Why don't I repurpose it for Maple Leaf Sports? And that was elite training. And I think in the end, 50 of you took that course. Um, I always said it was elite training. You had to have vice president potential to be in that course. So I'm bringing the best of the best together, putting eight at a time pitting you guys against each other. It was very much a meritocracy. Um, I, I imagine she'll watch this at once. Um, uh, Deborah, who took, uh, took the course, I gave her, I ranked her eighth in the course. She's never forgiven me uh, to this day. 
but she will tell you that pushed her. And yeah. uh, so I kept saying, listen, you're eighth, but you're elite. It's just, this is a meritocracy. And you know that I really believed in meritocracy. Uh, Jack, the late Jack Walsh, really, he talked about 70%, I think it was 70, 20, 10. 70 were, we'll talk about that a bit, but 20 were the, the I think I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but 20 were kind of high promotable. 10 should be out the door. Yeah. I think that was a little excessive. And 70, and I like average. to say, were the glue. Uh, you know, George, who worked in the finance department for hockey, um, you know, George was glue. Um, and, uh, you know, Bob Hunter's a glue guy, too. I mean, he just knows so much. So you need those. But, um, you know, you've got to create a meritocracy where the, the good ones get promoted, the good ones get picked in for elite training, the good ones get the bigger bonuses. It's a meritocracy. You earn those things. And, and because we were Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, I, I really believe we had to have the best people. So if someone was underperforming and not addressing their needs improvement, then it was time they found another job. Can you just expand a little bit on best practice and, and, and how that's shown up in Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment? So my, my experience with it was being sent to other stadiums before we opened BMO Field to see what they were already doing. And my understanding of your vision through BABA, that was take what's working and elevate it a level. You know, that's so, innovation um, versus invention. So uh, you, we, I, there was like three books that I, over the course of the years that I taught elite, I think the first one, uh, the second one was, or maybe the first one was Tishy. Yeah. And that's a great book. The Leadership Engine is still a great book. It comes still, up, you know. Teachable point values, of view. I still still ideas, with. energy, edge, and a teachable point of view. Those yeah. are the, that's a wonderful takeaway in that book. I think the last book was Winning by Jack Welch. And he had a chapter about legitimate plagiarism. So obviously you can't plagiarize a book. You can't plagiarize a formula. You can't plagiarize a song. But if something's in the public domain, why not go take it? And so I was out there looking for ideas that we could use. So I thought real sports was a great example of that. So I did a, you know, I wanted to launch a sports bar when I was at TSN and, and we were going to, but then I left and the project died after I left. But as soon as I got to Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, I always wanted to build a Maple Leaf Square with a sports bar and a, and a big store and do all of the stuff we ended up doing. Um, so I was out there and I, I saw ESPN zones, which have since closed. And I thought, okay, it's a, it's a good idea. Here's a good idea there. But what can I, and then, so you find a good idea, you take the parts that are good, and then you build upon the ones that could be better. So what do we do with real sports? We put in much better food with Tony, who was our first executive chef, all fresh stuff, just great. We put in, instead of small little TVs, we put that big, huge screen in. We designed it like an arena. And, um, you know, we, we did all of that stuff that was better than ESPN. So they were a best practice. I just believe in legitimate plagiarism that I always joke that I'm not a really creative guy. I just do a lot of legitimate plagiarism. It works. It's, 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 it's certain. The, the other way to look at that, you know, that I always shared is innovation versus invention. 
you don't always have to invent something new, just build the better mousetrap, right? And, and, and you can do that by seeing what's successful and then adding another level. And that's how things become iconic. I, Let I me use another example can... because you were involved in the launch yeah. of Toronto FC. So Toronto FC, the Major League Soccer was stalled. It was at about 12 teams. It was going nowhere. And, um, you know, we had a strategic plan coming up and I goes, geez, I, one of our goals was to increase enterprise value. And I said, I've looked at buying an MLS team in 1993 at Skydome. So I said, I'm going to open up that file. And anyhow, we, we bought the team. So Tom and Selmy and Beth Robertson and Bob, they started, they went, you know, they toured Mexico. They toured, you know, they went to Europe. And, and let's think about the logo and the name, Toronto FC Football Club. No one was using that in North America in those days. We picked up that idea from them. And then to make something that was really authentic, we wanted to make football, not soccer. We wanted to make football very authentic. So they did a best practices exercise that spanned, you know, Spain, France, Germany, Mexico. And they also did the same thing when they built the academy. So, you know, we, I used to always, when, you know, we did our MCM meetings where people would bring in ideas, I always wanted to make sure, okay, so what research have you done? What best practices exercise? And you could be a rock star just knowing best practices. Yeah, you did. And, and it's funny, I think a, a, a reflection of your leadership and the unity you had on your team that actually um, spun out to all the other senior leaders in the organization. If you just go down to BMO Field and what Michael and Brad Long did with the concessions menu there and bringing in international foods into that was never the chip buddy. I mean, franchise in a hot dog bun. Who would have thought of that? Well, that's big in England. And that right down to, I think you had Hoppy, or Tom, uh, renegotiate the beer deal. I think Budweiser was the beer sponsor for MLS. And you guys were able to get out of that with Labatt here in Canada. So the stadium opened up with Carlsberg, which yes. is really the international soccer beer. And, and so I think, you know, all of that really illustrates that. And I think it's going to be really valuable for people listening to the podcast, no matter what level they're at to not feel that pressure of having to invent something new, but take something and take it to the next level by being observant. I want to be really conscious of your time. You've been great. I got about 15 minutes left to, to fulfill my time commitment. So I want to shift to a couple things, Richard, um, that I really think is going to help a lot of people listening to this. One is, you know, how do you manage criticism and lead under fire? So I hate to take you back to a dark place, which may not have been dark for you. But when the Raptors weren't doing well, man, you heard it. And last I checked, you acknowledged you weren't a great basketball player and you weren't on the court, um, but you took a lot of heat. There was websites of firerichardpetty.com and planes flying through. And internally, none of us saw it rattle you. So I'm assuming it didn't. And if it did, how do you manage that much public criticism and still move forward and gain everyone's confidence? Because that was a big part of what I remembered about you as well. Well, first of all, I remember when I was uh, first starting at Colgate and I was working in the plant and the plant manager said to me, you know, it's, it's constructive criticism, but it's still criticism. So uh, you're going to get that. And it's how you take it in is, uh, first of all, that, you know, you got to listen and, and take it in and don't go through the five stages of acceptance, anger, denial, rationalization. You just got some criticism from a boss. Might not be completely fair, but the, the person who's got authority over you thinks it was legit. So, like, don't spend a lot of time getting angry and doing that. Um, I think ultimately, I mean, I always said 
presidents are human too. We bleed. Um, I can't say that that stuff didn't bother me. Um, stress hasn't really bothered me. And I, I sleep well at night. I think that was long distance running allowed me to survive a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that. But, you know, I really believe that, again, we're talking about walking the talk. The president walks through the office. If he or she is looking down and just, you know, looking like death and, you know, what's everyone going to say? What, what's happening here? You know, there's all kinds of speculation. So the president has to, as part of walking the talk, has to show confidence and, um, and shows that they're above it if they can. Um, and it just, and also, you know, what I said to, you know, I've given a lot of speeches to students who all want to work in professional sports entertainment. I said, listen, if you can't handle the heat, uh, then you should not be in that business. And so I handled the heat for 14 years, but I'll tell you the world's different now. So when I was leaving, you know, I didn't go on Twitter until two years after I retired. Social media was, you know, I, we were all carrying Blackberries in those days. It, it, you know, we were launching websites, but it wasn't there yet. It's much more intense now. And there's so much fake news and so many people ghosting you and so many people attacking you. I think it would be tougher now. Um, yeah, I got all those things like the, the plane flying over and people holding up signs and death threats and stuff like that. But again, I got through it, um, I guess, with some personal strengths and believe we could turn it around. But I do believe it's tougher now. And if you can't handle it, do not go into that business. Yeah, I think that's a wise counsel. I think people stay stuck for too long in a fit that they, they can't manage day to day. But also, I love the first piece that's like, you got to keep your head up and you just got to keep pushing through because everybody's watching. You're, you're always on, right? The yep. lights are always yep. on. Um, last little thing on the leadership side, and then I'd love for you to share what you're up to now, if you don't mind, and, and maybe leave us with a few words of wisdom. Uh, not that you haven't already, but you, you developed a really great team. So, you know, when I look at the leaders behind you and Tom coming in after you and, and now in Edmonton as the president of business operations and Bob going to be CEO for the Wolfpack and, and now doing this esports thing in Toronto and, and Hoppy with like the biggest soccer club in the world in one of the most senior positions and, and Paul Byrne and, and all these great guys and Patty Ann Tarleton, a ticket master, like I, Michael Doyle, president of ACTA, like, Richard, you have got quite a legacy and you never pat yourself on the back about it. I've never heard it. Um, But I think it's important for the people listening to understand, how do you think that happened? Why why were you as a leader able to generate so many other elite leaders? Um, One of Pillsbury's uh, values is people make the difference. And I kind of knew that. I kind of learned that, you know, on my way up the ladder, but it, it really became critical to me that people make the difference. And so you better surround yourself with great people. Um, they say you can judge a university by the quality of its graduates. You can also judge a company by the quality of the people that work there or did work there. And so I, I looked at that and, and I just really believed I had to surround myself with the best people. I made mistakes. I went with some people too long. Um, I'd love a couple of my mistakes back big time. Um, but I, you know, on, on balance, I believe I surrounded myself with good people. I unleashed them. 
I tried to give them a lot of autonomy. I mean, when, when Michael Downey left as our sales and marketing guy, I went to the board and said, I want to put Tom and Selmy in there. And the comment was, oh, he's a bricks and mortar guy. I said, no, he's got Chris Overholt underneath him. He's got, I can't remember the other person. I said, he's protected from below. I can protect him from above. I think he can grow into the job and look at him. He's been president of three hockey clubs so far. Yeah. So I I just really believe that be real tough. Try to hire the best. You won't always. It's not, you know, hiring is, is, it's about half science and half gut. Um, You know, work with them, empower them, uh, let them run. You know, in my last couple of years, I mean, I'll give you, for instance, Patty Antaro. I spent very little time on, on live entertainment. I always said I went where the problems were, where the opportunities were. Um, Patty was doing a hell of a job. I, I stayed away from her. I thought food and beverage had an opportunity. Other ones had problems. I just went there. And, um, you know, with, with, uh, and along the way, I think more or better. The uh, Pillsbury, I think eight or nine of my people went on to be presidents of companies. That was a really good team. It'll be interesting. I haven't added up uh, MLSE, but it's probably beat that number now. Quite a few. Um, so that's, again, you judge about a university, you judge a company by the quality of its graduates. So I understand, um, you know, your functional, like, you know, leadership, I view as a few different hats, but one, there needs to be some level of functional expertise, and there needs to be some level of generalist expertise. You, you can't know every job in a large organization, but you have to be able to support all your senior leaders. So I think what would be a value, again, for some of the people on the call, and I know for myself, you know, when I became president of a home building company, there was a huge gap because I had the sales, marketing, operations, client service in my background. Now, all of a sudden, I got to figure out land assembly, how to build a home, how to do financial stacking, using our limited equity to get a deal from the bank, and how much are we bringing in private lending and keeping all those stakeholders happy. And it was a steep learning curve, but I was still accountable to leading those departments. So the advice I would have wanted from you two years ago, I'll ask you now, how did you lead senior leaders in hockey, basketball, and soccer when you didn't come up being a coach or a general manager in those programs? It's probably where a CEO gets criticism that hasn't done it, but quite frankly, from my perspective, doesn't deserve to do it, nor do they need it if they're a good leader like you were. So how did you lead the ops guys? Well, I think there's a lot of fans in Toronto would say I didn't do a good job in that area, (laughs) but uh, you know, again, I tried to hire the best people. I, you know, I used to sit up in the, um, in the gondola in hockey and I'd sit beside Ken Dryden or whoever was up there and I wasn't telling them what to do. I'm just asking them a thousand questions. That's probably a pain in the ass. Um, so you just, you just try to do that. You try to hire the best people. Um, I, I just tried to make them, you know, if you're going to do that, really explain. I, it's, you know, I'd go on the fan. Sometimes it would make a trade or something. And I was criticized because I know all about the trade. And naively, I talked about it. So people thought I was making the trade. No. I sat in and I knew all of the questions why they weren't, weren't, uh, weren't my decision. But I knew all the rationale. So I did that. I just try to make them jump through their hoops. Um, you know, I think a couple of my poor hires were obviously basketball and hockey. And I kick myself now that I should have done, I should have reached out to the industry more. 
uh, yeah, I talked to my friends in the Detroit Pistons in New York, and I talked to the deputy commissioner. I think I could have done more. Um, so yeah, you, your learning curve, as you learn, is steep up. Um, you try to climb it as fast as you can. You better That's have good people in those positions to carry you. I think what's of value in everything you said, and there's so much there, is you know, yeah, you, you do have to know enough. And when you don't have the functional expertise, you need to pay attention to be able to provide the support and the resource to allow that leader to be successful. Mm -hmm. But I love that you can still acknowledge years later and say, ah, you know what, I would have done it differently. Maybe I should have done X. And I think where people growing up in leadership spend too much time is beating themselves up over mistakes. Just part of your journey, part of your path. And you're always going to look back and say, man, I would have taken that one differently. But you've got this tremendous body of work that has impacted so many people so many leaders. No one's going to be perfect. No yeah. one's going to be perfect. And the city of Toronto, look how many legacy pieces are left behind from you and that senior leader team's leadership. So I'll leave you with this because you've been awesome, Richard. And I would keep you on here for three hours if you'd let me, but I don't want to interrupt your, your, your personal life. So you're on to a few things. One, I, I love your passion for city building and, and proper development. If people aren't following you on Twitter. Um, you spend a lot of time sharing that there. Um, but talk to me a little bit, if you would, your new business with uh, the bookstore. And, and I'd really like to hear about the Odette Leadership Program at the University of Windsor. Uh, we'll deal with that one first. So when I retired, I just said to the owners and some people saying, listen, I don't need a trip to Hawaii or a set of golf clubs. Uh, do something with the business school. And everyone knew I, you know, I really believed in teaching leadership. So uh, friends, board members, owners raised $700,000 to invest in the Richard Petty Leadership Initiative. So that's been going on for eight years. I wish it was even more aggressive, but we've, we've created a leadership symposium that's probably the biggest in Southern Ontario. Unfortunately, it's not gonna happen this fall because COVID. We do case competitions. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good exercise. I'm still very involved in the University of Windsor. Uh, the bookstore, the bookshop, the River Bookshop is, is a long, I'm a great believer in connecting the dots. That, you know, this thing happens and then that thing happens and that thing happens. So let's go back to when I was like five years old. My dad read books to me about nature, which to this day, I think I'm a naturalist. Um, then I go into, I'm reading general books in high school, but in business, go to business thing and I, I, I read um, business books. Um, I like to say, people ask, who is my mentor? I didn't have a mentor. Oh, sure, I picked up good and bad from different people, but a mentor, the way people think of it today, I didn't have one. Books were my mentor. So I was used, you remember, you, first of all, you had to read a book, right? If you took elite training. Yep. And uh, as you remember, um, I was always suggesting books. We had an intranet site. And I was, I was I used to read this book or I'd be sending people a book. I can remember Brian Colangelo said, listen, I'm trying to get the basketball players to read some books. Can if you've got a handful or so that you really like, well, I pass them on. I don't sure anyone read them, but so I've always loved books. Um, you know that I wrote two after retiring. Give them a plug because they're amazing. Dream job and? A 21 Leadership Lessons, yeah. Yeah. which is a timeless read, I think. Um, and so as part of really understanding what makes great livable communities, I really believe in the importance of libraries and the importance of independent bookstores. 
And we, I'm in a little town of 21,000 out in Southern Ontario called Amherstburg. Its roots go back to 1812. Um, it's history, but a lot of its history has been hollowed out because they built too many damn parking lots. Um, and I just decided that this community could really benefit from a independent bookstore. So our vision, what a surprise, we have vision and values. Our vision is to be a third place. There's a whole theory about third places. Third place that contributes to the economic, social, and cultural um, health of the community. That's our vision. Our values are to educate, entertain, inspire, and engage. And so we are launching an independent bookshop called the River Bookshop. And, uh, you know, I bought an 1885 building and completely restored it. And I, you know, you know, created word marks and a website that'll be launched. Uh, I've really brought in really good designers, architects, web designers, logo designers, um, spending a piss pot full of money on it. <laughs> uh, but it's going to open in a couple of weeks and it's a game changer for the town. And, and the beauty, it's not just we're selling books. Our book selection or our titles will be very progressive. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. We're going to talk about the climate crisis. We're going to talk about how we've impacted our indigenous peoples. We're going to, I'm going to have Michael Landsberg down to talk about mental health. So there's going to be very robust sections in it, but I'm bringing in speakers on, you know, progressive policing and, and all those topics. And so I, I told the mayor who's going to cut the ribbon, I said, you know, we're going to do all this stuff. And, and I quote um, the late John, John Lewis, who just passed away a week ago. He says, we're going to, I'm going to cause a little good trouble because that's what John Lewis used to say, because, you know, to push to really be a healthy, vibrant, engaged, accessible um, town, I think you need uh, an independent bookstore that is championing everything. So it's probably more philanthropy than business, but we're following all the business disciplines. In fact, on Tuesday, what I do, an onboarding with uh, my staff and First one was vision and values. I talked about moment of truth. Um, I did all of the stuff. You would recognize um, uh, a lot of what I said in the presentation, but these, you know, it's a team of six, all young women. Um, I've got the lead bookseller, the manager is a woman who worked in the libraries for 15 years. And I told him, I said, listen, you're not just, I want you to do a really good job here. I said, this is, you're gonna learn stuff working at here that you will take on customer service and moments of truth and vision and values that you may, you will take into other jobs. They're all young. They're finishing up university and stuff. So it's kind of a teachable, teachable moment for them. And it's going to be the way I lead this book, bookshop. It's fantastic. It just tells me that your journey of leading and influences, influencing others never ends. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I'm 73 now. You're just, you're just um, getting going. Great. I just had a super workout. Um, like to keep, keep doing it as long as I can. That's awesome. I, I want to ask you one last question. Sure. Um, I do want to leave you with something, Richard. So, you know, you clearly have inspired me, even though I didn't directly report into you, I reported through Bob to you, but you were that type of leader where there was a relationship there. Um, your influence carries, and I'll tell you why. I'll give you a story that I've never given you um, and how it's impacted Guelph. So when you wrote Dream Job, you invited me to your book signing. 
Um, I was ecstatic. I said, can I bring a guest? And you said, sure. And I brought Lee Piccoli, the CEO and my boss at Fusion at that time. And it was in this cool little venue in King West, a little brick old style building heritage. And we were looking around and we had this heritage building on site of this high rise project that we had that would, oddly enough, we had bought off of uh, Larry Tannenbaum's son. It was a brownfield site, Kim. And uh, so anyways, all these worlds colliding and we didn't know what to do with it, but we knew we had to protect it. It was with the city of Guelph. So we were probably going to build it and lease it out. I said to Lee, like, look at this building. We're here having a drink. There's this cool vibe. Why don't we hold it? And why don't we do something and extend the brand of the Metalworks, which was this high rise project in Guelph. And let's build a pub and let's build a brew pub right there. And he goes, I'll give you three months. Go see if you can get some support. So I went to all the local businesses. I got nothing. I got nothing. I typed in the info section to Sleeman because I couldn't find any of them on LinkedIn creeping them. Sure enough, I get a call back from a guy named Nick Porcellato. He goes, meet me on the site. John Sleeman comes down. We look through the building. His family. John is a Sleeman's big, a great guy. Yeah, yeah great guy. history of, of, of their family business in Guelph. So he was more curious about that. Anyways, long story short, I said, you know, would you guys like to do it? And he goes, well, let me talk to the Japanese. And John was exiting Sleeman at that point. And they said, if you're going to do a brew pub for our brand, it's not going to be in Guelph. It's going to be in Toronto or Vancouver. So off I was to lease this thing. John calls me back and he goes, if you haven't done the deal, let's talk. And that was the beginning of Spring Mill Brewery that John started, uh, mm. sorry, Spring Mill Distillery. Their home is on that site in that heritage building. Uh, and John's launched that entire new distillery business in that site. And honestly, you had a level of influence on that because that night, you know, listening to you and your book opened Lee's mind to that type of vibe and leadership. And, and I'd like to think I got the green light to try and get that deal done because of that night we spent with you. Yeah, I really admire John. Um, you know, I got to know him. And even though we had a really good relationship with Molson's, I made sure that there were a couple of beers available in our restaurants from Sleeman's. John asked me to go on the board of Sleeman's when he was there. I said, I can't. I really would have loved to. I said, I can't. You know, Molson's is such a, a great uh, sponsor and partner of ours. I can't do that. But uh, yeah, that's nice. I, I yeah. didn't know John had done that. I yeah. have to look it up. Guelph's a, Guelph's a nice, uh, nice little town. They've got a great bookshop there. I can't remember the name of it. The uh, Mike Slander from the, the, book, is the yeah. MPP there, uh, head of the Green Party, who's going to come down and speak at our bookshop. So I got a lot of time for Guelph. Yeah, mayor's great here. Cam Guthrie's tremendous. But anyways, maybe I'll have him on a separate call. So I'll you leave should. you with You've been great, Richard. Your time's been awesome. What would you leave the up and coming frustrated manager um, with their career? What, what advice would you give them to keep them going like you did? You overcame some hurdles. You worked hard. You took your transferable skills. What'd you tell that individual today? Okay. So in my 21 leadership lessons, I think the last chapter is get back into the gym. Because I always say, so I, I, get, I stand up in front of audience and say, listen, do vision and values. Uh, do people make the difference, do best practices, do truth to power, do all these 20 things. And you, and I say to the audience, okay, you've done them all. You have done them all. You're great. But what happens? And I always say shit happens. The company gets sold. Uh, the company merges. Uh, the market goes to hell. COVID comes in. A box that you can't work with. All those things happen despite you following all 21 leadership lessons. So what do I say? I use the, the example of, uh, I, I tell the story about uh, Dwayne Casey. The guys had a bad night, did everything wrong on the court. He brings them back into the gym, get back into the gym, 
work on your plays, work on your defense, work on your three-point shooting, get back in the gym, go read, you know, do whatever's going to motivate, but get back into the gym because sitting on the outside and just, whoa, it's me, it's not going to work. Get back into the gym. Great advice for everybody listening. Richard, thank you. I, uh, I just want to take this opportunity to tell you you've influenced a whole heck of a lot of people in your life. And, and I, for one, am thankful for that. So thanks for doing this this evening. Well, thanks for inviting me, Mark. I didn't know that I was the first outsider. So I'm honored. Well, you got a TV star after you. We're going to see if Kate Furness can, can do a little better next time. Okay. I'll just tease you. That was great, Richard. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate okay, it. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Bye now. I'll just stop.